Our first movie tells the story of a friendship behind prison walls that spans more than 20 years. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 2, I guess, of uh, the bonus episodes where me, Isabel Arf, talks to you about something that I didn't have time to talk to you about in the episode. So last episode, or the one you just listened to, uh, episode 24, I believe it was, uh, we talked about judgment at Nuremberg. And in the episode, I talked a little bit about um, Carl Schmidt, who is a German jurist, uh, who I thought was actually really important to understanding what the movie was trying to get across. And I wish the movie would have brought him up more specifically and dealt with his ideas more specifically. But I also realized, listening back to it, that most people don't really know much about Carl Schmidt. Uh, so here's this episode, kind of going over his ideas and everything, going over who he was um, and why he's relevant to that film and why I think uh, we should think about him when we think about that film. So... It's probably going to be a shorter episode than the last time I did a bonus episode, just because I don't have as much to say about about Schmidt, because I'm not a scholar on Schmidt. I've only read his book, Political Theology, and I've read parts of uh, his work um, where he discusses the friend-enemy dis- distinction, which we'll go over in a second. But, uh, so Schmidt was a German jurist um, pre-World War II, is when he was most influential. Um, and then during World War II, he became a Nazi, like... Unfortunately, probably about half of the German intellectuals uh, of that era. I mean, like Carl Jung, Heidegger was a big one. Um, People that are incredibly influential on uh, Western philosophy, unfortunately. Um, Basically, if you weren't Jewish uh, and you lived in Germany and you were an intellectual during World War II, you probably became a Nazi. It just kind of is the trend, uh, which deserves its own criticisms and deserves its own explications and understandings of why those things happen and why we can't ignore that, especially with Heidegger. Uh, Heidegger is really famous for his existential philosophy, but if you read it, I think there are echoes of a certain kind of thought process that you can see why maybe he might have gotten involved in fascist movements. Um, that's for a very different episode, and I would have to read all of Being in Time first before I feel comfortable doing that. But uh, first, let's go over Schmidt. So Schmidt was a German jurist, very influential. His two main ideas, um, one we're not going to super talk about today, is the idea of the friend-enemy distinction, which was a way he thought of viewing politics. Uh, and then the other one, which is the one we are going to talk about today, is his idea of the sovereign uh, and what the sovereign means, what the sovereign can do, and what the sovereign's for, really. Um, so, I actually have a copy of Political Theology here, and I'm going to be referencing it, so that way we can you know, be a little more exact about what we're talking about here. So, let me pull up the thing I'm looking for. So, what is the sovereign? So, Schmidt said it really simply in the beginning of uh, 
of his short book, Political Theology, or I guess just more like a pamphlet or an essay at that point, series of pieces. Uh, Sovereign is he who decides on the exception. Only this definition can do justice to a borderline concept. Contrary to the imprecise terminology that is found in popular literature, a borderline concept is not a vague concept, but one pertaining to the outermost sphere. This definition of sovereignty must therefore be associated with a borderline case and not with routine. There's more to it than that. Obviously, that's like there's a whole chapter called Definition of Sovereignty where he goes into this. But what he means by it essentially is that the sovereign is a, is a, it's a legal and political idea. Essentially, like the sovereign is the one who has control over a state uh, or a uh, assemblage of some sort. Um, and there's a lot of different ways to define that and define what the sovereign is. And to Schmidt, the sovereign is the one who, in a state of exception, so a state where there is no predetermined course of action, then the sovereign is the one who decides on that exception. Um, something that's important to remember about this, um, and to remember about Schmidt's work in general, is that at least in political theology, um, he wasn't really looking at answering the question of where this power comes from. Um, where where does the power of the sovereign come from? He wasn't really interested in that. He was more interested in defining what it means and defining why it's important and why the idea is important. So let me actually read a little bit more from him uh, to go into that a little more. From a practical or a theoretical perspective, it really does not matter whether an abstract scheme advanced to define sovereignty, namely that sovereignty is the highest power, not a derived power, is acceptable. About an abstract concept, there will be in general no argument, least of all in the history of sovereignty. What is argued about is the concrete application, and that means who decides in a situation of conflict what constitutes the public interest or interest of the state, public safety and order, and so on. The exception, which is not codified in the existing legal order, can at best be characterized as a case of extreme peril, a danger to the existence of the state, or the like. But it cannot be circumscribed factually and made to conform to a preformed law. So the thing I want to emphasize there is that sentence, um, like the exception, which is not codified in the existing legal order, can best be characterized as a bunch of other things, but also a danger to the existence of the state. That is very important to why I think that the judges that we see in Judgment at Nuremberg chose not to chose to act in a way that we would not consider morally right, and even they maybe didn't consider morally right, but that was inscribed or enshrined in law as the thing you were supposed to do, and was enshrined in the public good as a concept, as a thing that you should be doing. Um, we will get into this in a second, but it is worth pointing out as we go into a couple more quotes that the really difficult part of reading Schmidt is that a lot of what he's doing is responding to other legal theorists and other jurists. Um, so it can be hard to read excerpts or try to get exactly what he's getting at, because a lot of what he's doing in political theology is arguing against other forms of judicial thought. Because um, one of the big ones he's going against is, um, I believe he refers to it as determinism. I might be slightly off in that. Uh, but the essentially the idea that um, the judge decides... Uh, essentially, almost in a way, the law is sovereign or the constitution is sovereign. And the judge simply divines answers from that law. And 
there's a lot of problems with this. Uh, even though it's, it sounds like very much what we base our own um, legal system on, because uh, we are a liberal democracy, which is kind of what he was arguing with and criticizing. The problem with liberal democracy, um, at least this is Schmidt's argument, so there's other problems with liberal democracy um, that a Marxist, for example, would bring up. But again, that would take more time to go into than we have today. Um, but um, essentially, he said that the liberal democracy cannot provide an answer to the exceptional because legal norms are always limited to some degree. And all legal norms require the application of subjective opinion because it's impossible to create legal norms that apply in every single case or apply universally. Um, like if you think about something as simple as um, someone stole something and you're sentencing them to um, go to jail. Uh, in the American legal system, uh, for example, the judge has say over how long you should be in jail, um, has um, say over what the bail should be, has say over a lot of different things that requires their judgment. And since that is in a way an exceptional circumstance, because it's not a circumstance already described by the law, like the law does not say precisely what to do, if there's any wiggle room there, um, because every single situation is different, then the individual judge becomes the sovereign. And then you have multiple sovereigns operating against each other. And um, let me read a little bit from Schmidt to talk about that point a little bit more. So, the multifarious theories of the concept of sovereignty, those of Crabb, Pruss, Kelsen, demand such an objectivity. They agree that all personal elements must be eliminated from the concept of the state. For them, the personal and the command elements belong together. According to Kelsen, the conception of the personal right to command is the intrinsic error in the theory of state sovereignty, because the theory is premised on the subjectivism of a command rather than on the objectively valid norm. He characterized the theory of the primary of the state's legal order as subjectivist, and as the negation of the legal idea. In Crabb, the contrast between personal and personal was linked with the contrast between concrete and abstract, individual and general, which can be extended to the contrast between authority and legal prescription, authority and quality, and in its general philosophical formation to the contrast between person and idea. Confronting in this fashion personal command with the impersonal validity of an abstract norm accords with the liberal constitutional tradition of the 19th century, which was lucidly and interestingly explained by Ahrens. For Pris and Crabbe, all conceptions of personality were after effects of absolute monarchy. <clears throat> Excuse me. And sorry if you... This is, I'm breaking from the quota real quick. Sorry if it's really loud. It's raining outside, and I'm probably not going to be able to eliminate that in post because it's very, very loud. <laughs> um, anyways, continuing. All these objections fail to recognize that the conception of personality and its connection with formal authority arose from a specific juristic interest, namely, an especially clear awareness of what the essence of the legal decision entails. Such a decision, in the broadest sense, belongs to every legal perception. Every legal thought brings a legal idea, which in its purity can never become reality, into another aggregate condition and adds an element that cannot be derived either from the content of the legal idea or from the content of a general positive legal norm that is to be applied. Every concrete juristic decision contains a moment of indifference from the perspective of content because the juristic deduction is not traceable to the last detail to its premises and because the circumstance that requires the decision remains an independently determining moment. This has nothing to do with the causal and psychological origins of such a decision, even though the abstract decision as, as such is also of significance, but with the determination of the legal value. 
The certainty of the decision is, from the perspective of sociology, of particular interest in the age of intense commercial activity, because in numerous cases, com commerce is less concerned with a particular content than with a calculable certainty. He continues later. Um, that the, that the legal idea cannot translate itself independently is evident from the fact that it says nothing about who should apply it. In every transformation, there is present on, I'm going to mispronounce this, auctoritatis interposito, a distinctive determination of which individual person or which concrete body can assume such an authority cannot be derived from the mere legal quality of a maxim. This is the difficulty that Crabbe ignored. So... What he's saying there is that you can't determine essentially who the sovereign is or where the authority for the law comes from simply by the existence of something being a, a, like a legal maxim or something being a legal idea. Essentially, you can create a legal idea, but if you don't have anyone to enforce it, you don't have a public good that you're enforcing it for, that legal idea <clears throat> doesn't interface with reality, essentially. Um, and that all legal decisions require some interpretation, and a liberal democracy requires each judge to become sovereign, as I said before, by deciding their own exception, because there is no sense of central authority that uh, the law gets its weight from and gets its power from. Uh, so he thought that the application of legal norms required a central authority. Um, so if we go to let's see, I believe it's page 34 here. So in this, he's uh, referencing Hobbes. When he says he, he's re referencing Hobbes, who uh, it's important to note was one of the... Oh, God, how do we talk about Hobbes uh, without getting into all of Leviathan? Hobbes is a very influential thinker in conservative thought uh, for a lot of reasons, um, but then one being his idea of authority. But um, in his day of where authority comes from and what authority should be. But... Uh, Schmidt critiques Hobbes in a way that I think is really interesting. So, he says, The form that he sought lies in the concrete decision, one that emanates from a particular authority. In the independent meaning of the decision, the subject of the decision has an independent meaning apart from the question of content. What matters for the reality of legal life is who decides. Alongside the question of substantive correctness stands the question of competence. In the contrast between the subject and the content of the decision, and in the proper meaning of the subject lies the problem of the juristic form. It does not have the a priori emptiness of the transcendental form because it arises precisely from the juristically concrete. The juristic form is also not the form of technical precision because the later has a goal-oriented interest that is essentially material and impersonal. Finally, it is also not the form of aesthetic production because the later knows no decision, or the latter knows no decision. So why is this important? Why did I just read you a bunch of shit from Carl Schmidt? Um, and why is he important in general? So, when we look at the judges in Judgment in Nuremberg, essentially what they were asked, or what liberal democracy is asking them to do, is to take their own interpretation of the law based on their own moral character and go against the state. And in this situation, go against the sovereign, who in Nazi Germany was Hitler. Um, who not only decided, he was not only the place where legal authority emanated from, he was also the place where the idea of the public good emanated from, and he was the one who decided what was the public good. So the job of a judge in this formulation is not to enforce something that is right, is not to do the correct thing or to follow 
what they believe their jurist their judicial calling and duty to be their duty is to enforce the will of the sovereign because he is where all the if without him at least in schmidt's perspective without the sovereign without the respect of the sovereign then the juristic form the juristic idea has no content or at least does not have any backing behind its content so it wasn't just that i want to be very specific here it wasn't just that judges in nazi germany were anti-semitic even though they certainly were or were um ableist which even though they certainly were or homophobic or anti-romani or anti um black or anything like that it's not to say that they weren't those things but more importantly at least for the very legal and conceptual minded of them maybe for the more ideological of them if they question the sovereign they're questioning the state the sanctity of the state and they're putting the state in danger and this is immediately after i mean looking for context uh, this is very quickly after the short period of the weimar republic that came after world war one uh and world war one left a really big scar on the german psyche and a feeling of embarrassment and defeat and um fear without over psychoanalyzing too much uh over the weakness of the german state and if you're in a situation where you believe that the state is weak and that to disagree with the state or to become sovereign in your own way to make your own decisions that go against what the sovereign who legitimizes the existence of the state would have you do is to jeopardize the state in and of itself and to jeopardize germany and i think that's really interesting uh i don't believe it's correct <laughs> should be obvious but i think it's i think the reason the movie doesn't get into it is for two reasons one it's a hollywood movie and i can't realistically expect a hollywood movie to get into um german legal theory even someone as incredibly important and influential as schmidt but more importantly, I think it's really interesting here, and the, the reason the movie doesn't get into it is because critiquing that requires answering its critiques of liberal democracy, uh, which I think are actually relatively strong critiques. Like, if we allow everyone to become the sovereign, if we, A, are we assuming that the that legal system exists apart from our interpretations of it? Like, can we just create a legal system that does not require interpretation, which I would say no. I think all legal systems require some degree of interpretation to move the idea from conceptual into reality. Um, but more importantly for Schmidt, and thing more importantly as a critique, if we don't, who potentially where does the authority come from? Um, if if what Schmidt says is true, and putting that authority in the state doesn't actually like assumes a level of deterministic quality that isn't actually true, that means the legal authority doesn't exist anywhere. So you either have a state that has that legal authority uh, or a state that has an agreed upon, let's say, idea of the public good, for example, like a communist state theoretically would, um, which is not to say I advocate for a communist state, I'm an anarchist, but that's my, my issues with Schmidt are a completely different subject. But if the state does not justify itself in some way like that, or if you do not have a leader uh, overseeing the state who the power emanates from, then you don't have a state. 
you're constantly in danger of losing what you think you have. So in order for Judgment at Nuremberg to properly critique Schmidt's ideas, it would, and I think this relates to the the critique of liberal of the liberalism of the of the film that I got into in the actual episode that I left in. It would require the film to critique and really look at liberal democracy, uh, specifically the capitalist liberal democracy, and justify it and really explain why why it works the way it works and why that is the form that other legal systems should take and other political systems should take and things like that. And I don't think that... What's the best way to put this? I don't think that Schmidt's normative claims are correct, to throw back to a previous episode, but I think his descriptive claims are at least very seriously worth looking into. And you should be able to answer them. And I don't think the liberal democracy can. So that's, I think, the part of the reason the film didn't get into it. But I think the film would have been much richer for it because this is clearly... When the film talks about why the judges acted the way they did, it's very clear that they acted the way they did based on Schmidt's ideas. Um, so yeah, that was 20 minutes on Carl Schmidt. Uh, I'll probably cut it down. I'll probably be way shorter in the future. Sorry for reading so much from Political Theology. It's not a very good book. I wouldn't recommend you read it unless you're a nerd like me. Um, but that's kind of more of what I wanted to get into in the actual episode itself. Um, so yeah, I mean, the short version, just a cliff notes, summarize up. Carl Schmidt was a, uh, German, polit- a German political and judicial theorist who believed that the idea of the sovereign was the one who defines what the exception is and defines how to answer the exception. And the reason that's important is because the sovereign is where legal authority derives from. And liberal democracy, because it does not have the sovereign, does not actually have a place where its legal authority derives from. Or at the very least, it is obscuring the ideology behind its legal theory and obscuring the ideology behind where its actual authority comes from. And the fact that it obscures it basically makes it for the security of the state and the security of the state people essentially means the same thing as not having one. That's a little bit of my extrapolation, but, um, and that's what is needed is the central authority to define that particular case and define the norms by which the rest of the judicial system operates underneath. Um, but yeah, that's it, I guess. Thanks for listening. You probably turned it off. I doubt anyone wanted to hear me talk about Carl Schmidt for a while. Um, but if you like these episodes, um, you know, let me know. Email us at Middlebrow. If you disagree with my interpretation of Schmidt, I would actually really like to hear it. I'm an amateur in terms of German legal theory. Um, that was just based on my reading of political theology. Um, I'd love to hear what you have to say. Um, if you want more of these episodes, let me know. Until then, you can find me at Space Jam Fan. You can find the podcast at Middlebrow Pod. You can email us, Middlebrow Madness. Um, yeah, uh, have movies. Be jolly. Don't listen to Carl Schmidt, even if he's very important. Bye.